0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing and entrepreneurship to help you harness your own inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today is Avery Akanini, who is the president of not Vayner NFT, recently rebranded Vayner three. And she leads Vayner's mission to build long-term strategic NFT projects for the world's leading intellectual property owners. Collaborators include brands, celebrities, athletes and associations that are looking to incentivize and reward brand advocacy. And customer loyalty. And prior to Vayner, it relaunched VaynerMedia's Media's Pacific Arm, Asia Pacific Arm, growing the team from zero to one hundred and fifty in just two years and in her time there she opened offices in singapore bangkok tokyo and sydney to name a few pretty awesome spots and before vayner she worked at a couple of little companies called google and target and we'll get into that in a little bit and avery's in a unique position to say the least and is creating what will likely become the blueprint for nft brands and agencies moving forward so let's get right to it and pick her brain on what she's been up to avery welcome to the podcast
1: thank you so much for having me adam i'm honored to be here
0: well, thank you so much. And, and we were chatting beforehand. And I've had so much of, of the Vayner crew, um, a, a group of folks that have meant so much to me. And, you know, even though my time there was short, I find that the relationships that I built over the last seven, eight years since have just been really what it's all about. So I thank you, first and foremost, for making the time, uh, being so generous with your knowledge, not just to me, but everyone out there. So quick, thank you.
1: Thank you so much. And that means a lot.
0: Cool, and I appreciate you for joining me. So let's hit the big old rewind button here, as I like to do on the podcast, and take it back. Um, So originally from Nashville, right before it it was the Nash Vegas that uh, we know it today, a little bit different. Um, And you've had a pretty interesting journey, you know, from um, University of San Diego through Target and working there. What was what was like that? You know, take it back to those early stages, like you know, in in college. Did you have any clue or any thought of what you wanted to be and even imagining where you would be now?
1: Not a clue, Uh, I think. So I went to college in San Diego, which I thought was the best place ever. And I still think San Diego is the best place ever. I really adored it, Um, had amazing friends, great, uh, great connection and community there. Um, I originally wanted to go into being a business executive at a brand. Uh, so I started at target and they have a very specific management training program of how they groom their executives. And they basically give you a handbook when you have your first day there they take you to Minneapolis. Everybody's wearing red khaki. It's like, this is how you become an executive at target. Follow these 485 steps. You do this right in this order, then you will succeed here. And it was a really great first, uh, job because they have, all of this sort of like history and data of how executives Mm -hmm. succeed at target and a very specific process in which they sort of groom their talent and develop people over time. Um, So it was a great first job. I learned a lot about a lot of different things at target. Um, I love San Diego, but I realized that um, I wanted a little bit more freedom and flexibility in my role. Uh, It's very specific and also includes working on Thanksgivings and black Fridays, which I was even the executives, which I was not all about. Uh, gotta suck it up so i realized that maybe retail was not going to be my future um and the sort of red and khaki is almost like symbolic of how they're really uniform and they're really fair and it's really um an amazing company but it's all very standardized even down to the to what people wear like if you walk around headquarters like you'll see the ceo wearing red and khaki and i really just wanted to stand out a little bit more um and do something that was a little bit more unique. Uh, and I got an, an amazing job opportunity at Google uh, in San Francisco. And I figured, I think Google's a rocket ship. I was a power user of the products. This was 2012. So Google was nowhere uh, near as large and omnipresent Crazy as it is Crazy to think today. back to
0: 2012, 10, 10 years ago. But let's pause there for a moment. And one of the things that I love to talk about are those early experiences, because I know in my career, most people talk about, you know, the good, but we also should talk about the, the not so good. And one of the core things about those early jobs, whether it be internships or those first ones, is learning what you don't like. And from the sound of it, it sounds like structure or, or, or such formality and, and confirmation. Uh, you know, is that really what it was all about? I mean, what was that key takeaway of what you didn't like working at Target?
1: Yeah, it's a super structured environment. So I think it was a little too much structure for me personally, though I still, funny enough, have friends who were in my start class at Target who are still there and who really love the company. They're lifers. They have a lot of lifers there. And they do a great job of retention and developing their talent, um, which is something that I really admire out of Target. But for me, it was too much structure and... Also, the nature of work in retail is just not necessarily for me in terms of like the hours and so much of it's super manual um, and super labor intensive um, that I think that was one of the things that actually drew me to Google was this automation and scale and speed that exists in technology that just inherently can't exist in a retail business.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So so talk about your time at Google, which is, is fascinating. I love to talk to Googlers about and especially at the time you were there, so 2012, and Google being on the front lines of all things, you know, future forward in trends, you know, what was one of those important lessons or philosophies that you kind of saw coming before everybody else? Because that's kind of what's happening in Web three right now. I mean, you're in the the you know people throw around the, the the term alpha, but I would say that you're you're super alpha. So what was what was some of that super alpha at Google that you picked up on before it was you know commonplace?
1: I think e-commerce. Google was really fundamental in unlocking e-commerce for a lot of large companies. And I remember conversations in 2012 where you know brands and, and like at Google you would consider that a B two B play, B two B type of companies were like, oh, nobody's ever gonna you you know buy a mattress online, buy a car online. <laughs> and then you started to see the early adopters who started to yeah. do it. And now, of course, ten years later. It's, so, it's everywhere. People buy everything online, whether they're buying a sparkling water online or they're buying their phone online or they're buying an engagement ring online. People buy everything online now. Um, and I think Google was fundamental in helping drive that for a new generation of entrepreneurs who also launched D2C brands that could out-innovate and move faster than a lot of the more sort of established retail uh, competitors
0: and and that and 's a fantastic take too. I mean are you seeing some similarities from your time at Google and that that crystal ball that you had in front of you kind of the way you know web three is right now
1: One hundred percent I think there are so many parallels of wh- what Google unlocked um, as a platform and uh, also gave gave rise to this whole new generation of other uh, platforms, whether that 's meta or that 's Amazon or that 's eBay or that's snap or Twitter. It opened up um, you know, a whole new slew of tools for brands to communicate with their consumers for things like commerce, communication, entertainment. Um, and of course, YouTube, um, I also think was, is it was a crystal ball for just how TV can be digital. Like TV did not used to be digital. It used to be, you had to tune in at like 8 PM to watch your favorite show on Thursday. Now you can watch it whatever you want on your iPhone um, or your Android. Gotta be fair to Google there.
0: Side note, did you see in, in today's, like I'm sure you get a million daily emails like I do, but you know, Netflix is going through some struggles with their subscription that they're considering ads. I, mean, I saw that. Hot, what's your, what's your hot take on that?
1: I think Netflix having uh, an, An ad-fueled ecosystem is a natural fit for them. I think there's a certain number of people who prefer to subscribe and they don't want ads and they'd rather pay. But you also see from places like YouTube with billions of users, there's a lot of people who just want to watch it and they don't mind if they have to watch an ad. If they don't have to pay $10, they're more than happy or whatever it is, $12 these days for Netflix. I think that will open up a whole new slew of uh, people who tune into the Netflix shows.
0: So you don't think they're going to be sacrificing some of their core brand story? Like, this is who we are. We are the, you know, high quality content, no commercials. This is who we are. Or like, or some loyal subscribers going to be like, no, they can charge me more money. I'm not interested.
1: Well, Netflix has kind of been in gradually increasing costs for the last several years um, mm-hmm. as they've kind of tapped out their subscription growth. And I think particularly in emerging markets, people might not have $12 a month um, to spend on this. And if they want to unlock uh, market share in places like India and Southeast Asia, I think it's going to be pretty critical uh, to their business. Of course, I do believe they should continue their like OG heritage of premium content. Model. Yeah. So I think I think having both streams in parallel is probably the right move for Netflix.
0: I It's actually going to save this for later, but it kind of got my brain spinning here. So I, I had the pleasure to interview Kevin Smith, who was a speaker at VCon a couple of weeks back. Um, it actually worked out pretty well because I got bumped from his interview at VCon, where I probably would have had maybe like six to 10 minutes with him. And he spent 32 minutes with me, nice. which was incredible. Um, and he launched a couple of weeks back, uh, one of the first core movies to be released via NFT Kilroy, um, via NFT's uh six thousand no five thousand five hundred and fifty five versions of that and he equated it to like this is the movement of indie films you know back back 20 years back from your perspective and your perch um you know looking at entertainment is releasing content through nfts going to really be the way of the future
1: potentially i think that there's a ton of promise in using nfts as a fundraising vehicle for things like indie films um if you look at uh Shows like Stoner Cats that have launched with mm-hmm. an NFT first, you can obviously make a lot of money, especially if you time it correctly, and you can use that to fund the development of the show, which is amazing. But I think that the timing of the market and the pricing needs to be readjusted, and expectations need to be a little bit realigned. So, reality is, very few people today are even know what an NFT is, much less are holding an NFT, much less are going to invest invest in indie film NFT. If you are in, have an amazing IP that can break through, absolutely. And it's a fundamental new model that empowers holders of the NFT and creators to have aligned incentives, which is tremendously powerful. I think it's very hard to do that successfully these days. You know, we see... Um, incredibly successful entrepreneurs and builders launching NFT programs and selling just a couple hundred of them. So mm-hmm. it's tr- it's important that you have the re- realistic expectations.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we talk about, you know, the big hurdle right now in the web three and NFT world is education. Mm-hmm. And, and adoption and i think that when there's more mainstream projects coming out there'll be more eyeballs on it and a lot of the folks you know we also know right now we're still at the early adopter phase in my opinion and we're starting to see a lot more mainstream um acceptance and trial i mean it doesn't really help when you see a lot of the negative news that are out there whether it be the scams whether you see the rug pulls and everything but what do you think like the the big kind of block the big hurdle into adoption and education is right now
1: the consumer journey is like long and painful it's like you know we we, we're just talking about google in 2012 like buying a mattress online didn't used to be easy it wasn't three clicks it was like 30 clicks and you had to input a bunch of stuff and it wasn't fast or transparent and you know it wasn't a great process right so the early adopters did it anyway because they're like hey i'm gonna do this but if you're a person buying a mattress online in 2012 you were an early adopter that's where we are right now with if you're a person buying an nft um in 2022, you're an early adopter because it's a kind of an annoying process to have ETH, and, like make sure that you put in your MetaMask Send account, buy it, then you have to move it to your cold wallet so you don't get it so it doesn't get stolen, but make sure you don't sign a transaction for um, an app that has been compromised. Don't click on the wrong link in discord. You know, there's a lot of like do's and don'ts right now that are um it's a lot of complication for your average user. What I think will happen is three things. One, there's education and like education is fundamental. It's like, why does digital asset ownership matter? The second thing is on ramps, easier on ramps, Mm -hmm. more seamless. Amazon revolutionized e-commerce with the one click. So that same idea of just one click, keep it simple. Like the simpler, the better. And the third part is, I think we also need things that people want to buy. Um, things that people want to collect, that they want to buy, that they view as valuable, and something that like means something to them. There's a lot of NFTs out there that um, are interesting to the creator, but I get pitched NFT projects all the time, and I'm like, but I'm who sure. cares about that? And right really, that having cares. things um, that break through to mainstream consumers in terms of whether they look cool, they sound cool, they make you look cool in the metaverse. You know, beyond the financial speculation aspect, we need pro- uh, programs and NFT brands to launch things that people actually want.
0: Well, let's talk about that a little bit deeper is the word utility. And I think utility is subjective, right? Because a one-of-one piece of digital art, it's subjective utility and value is to the user. They're a collector for it. They value the piece of art. It means a lot to them. Versus utility, let's just say, well, because we're in this universe of a Vayner Sports Pass, the utility of being a sports fan and having access to certain things. Um, utility, utility is subjective. I mean, how do, how do you work with brands to really define what that utility is and ensuring that there's a demand for that and calculating the value and how it relates to an NFT project? So... That's like a 10-part question. You,
1: yeah. Utility me. can mean a lot of different things. It can mean um, access to a talent, like a you get access to Gary Vee if you have a brunch bear. It can mean... um utility in terms of being part of a club means you can get access to special discord channels like the punks discord chat is like the most coveted one to get in you have to have a punk to be able to talk otherwise you just read it or it can mean things like you get access to merchandise and product, yep. or it can mean you got access to discounts. I think that like utility element again comes back to understanding your consumer. What does your consumer want from you that you can then provide to them via an NFT? And maybe it's access to you as a celebrity. Maybe it's um, meet and greets. Maybe it's merch. Maybe it's um, early access to some of your products. If, and if you're a hot brand like a hot streetwear brand that your drops always sell out, people right. might you know pay to be a part of a club that's able to get early access. Um, Or things like product, right? Like uh, a lot of brands create physical products sending either, you know, limited editions or special products to your loyalist fans, I think is really interesting. Um, So I think that utility has to be unique to something that fans actually want. So just today we actually did a, um, launched a project with, um, one of and Gatorade. So Gatorade, they do a really cool program called athlete of the year player of the year Mm -hmm. where they highlight 12 different emerging athletes and, you know, typically give them some swag. We actually also added an NFT component this year where you rip open a pack of three and it's only $5 and all proceeds go to benefit Um, their charity partner. Um, and I think that makes sense for Gatorade because they have this program. The utility is collecting like it's like an, a rookie card for these emerging athletes and previous uh, players of the year have been, like Peyton Manning and all these super famous people. So you're getting an early rookie card from Gatorade. Ties
0: to the ties to their brand, always repre- represent or always showcasing, you know, the top athletes.
1: Exactly. And um, also the, the it goes to Good Sports Charity, which is another like utility for people. I think that's a really smart way for brands, um, you know, to do something that, you don't have to commit a ton of utility, but hey, it's $5 going to a charity and you get this cool card. you get three of these cool cards. And I think that's a nice example of something that uh, has the right expectations. On the flip side, if you're charging an ETH for something, you're charging two ETH for something, you're expecting more utility. Like let's just take VCon as an example. The mint price for those was like on average just over an ETH, but you're getting access to a four-day conference three years in a row. um, Yeah, there's a ton of utility there.
0: Yeah. That, so yeah, that, that, it
1: it depends how you price it and, and how you deliver upon uh, that value.
0: I mean, it's a, it's a wild west, and as you know, you know, being firsthand at the front line of it, it's just a fascinating uh, place to be in from all different perspectives. For me, doing talent, so let's talk about talent for a moment there before I go back to the rewind button. Um, what is the biggest challenge, whether it be at Vayner Three or what you're hearing from your clients in the space as as they build teams as they look to expand their teams, to grow, to hire, what do you see as the biggest challenges in hiring for Web3?
1: Combining people who understand what's happening in Web3 from a practitioner level and marrying that with people who understand business. I think a lot of, um, you know, it, when we're hiring for Vayner3, we need you need to have at least one and you have ideally both. And I think the strongest people on our team have both business acumen and a real understanding of Web3. Um, I think that's a an super important combination. That's very rare. It's like finding a unicorn. You can't well, find no these people. Well, because they're real experts,
0: right? Like, yeah. I would say, like, I mean, you're, you I would consider you an expert. There's very few experts because of how long we've been in this space. But you know, when we look in Web three, when I hire from my clients, it's having being like at least at a inf- strong enthusiast level, but having that business acumen. Because the number one complaint I hear is, "Hey, we found the developer, but they have zero communication skills. They have that business acumen, which is missing."
1: Yeah, it's funny, though. Um, So I've spent a lot of time like recruiting for obviously hiring my team, we've had like over 60 people join, which is amazing. Um, And I actually do a lot of my recruiting from Twitter, Uh, used to be like LinkedIn and greenhouse, but Twitter has Mm -hmm. been um, my top place where I, you know, you can Mm -hmm. hear how people talk, how they articulate their ideas, what they post. So I'll give like my head of strategy, Absolutely. my Web three ops director, and my chief of staff. I met all of them on Twitter um, because I can see what they post, what they think, how they engage, how they and then you know combine that with like, okay, great, we'll verify they've actually worked at some real companies, and and that they also want to work at a at a more sort of um, traditional business. Like you know we work nine to five, we have meetings, there are Zoom calls. It's it's like a real job. <laughs> an um, and not schedule. Not every, yeah, not everybody. <laughs> who's in the, the Web3 world wants to do that full-time.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. And that's what I love about Web3 because it's forced me, recruiting in Web3, because it's, it's forced me to look outside and, and, and say, okay, well, the folks we're looking for are not necessarily on LinkedIn like they used to be. Mm-hmm. They're not sitting in my email database. And one of the really cool things that we work with one of our clients is we empowered their Discord community to crowdsource designers that we were looking for. Because they that. were aficionados and we helped facilitate that. So one of that's one of the really cool, kind of interesting things that we do there. The podcast is brought to you in partnership with Vincheri, the recruitment operating system, the all-in-one tech platform purposely built for recruitment and staffing to unify your front, middle, and back office operations. Vincherry is designed by recruiters for recruiters. Both the company and the platform are the unique creations of successful recruiters who sold their business, saw a need for a better recruitment tech, and made it happen. And if you're looking to upgrade your recruitment tech and give your recruiters a new modern operating system, visit vincherry.io slash podcast. That's vincer eio i-o backslash p-o-z-c-a-s-t for an exclusive offer. Thanks. But let's hit the rewind button and I'd love to dig into that story um, because it's very serendipitous, right? Like, so you, correct me if I'm wrong here, the way the story goes, Gary was speaking or he had something going on at Google and you guys met and yada, 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 Vayner3, right? (laughs) Like, So, A, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that story. And then the second part is being in the last three years, can't believe I'm saying almost three years of the pandemic, with so much of a shift from work from home. Right now, if you were work from home at Google, you probably went to met Gary. And the serendipitous <laughs> moment probably went to happen.
1: That's true. It's uh it's very true. I think in person really matters. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the story of how I first encountered Gary. Um, so I first started with meeting, so I was working at Google across a bunch of platforms. I worked across Search, across YouTube, and across DoubleClick, which was a Google acquisition mm-hmm. that's basically a programmatic platform. And Gary came in to do a talk for us, like one of his in- inspiration talks. And I was just very impressed with how he thought about things in his own category. There was like other agencies were sort of like shades of gray. Then there was Gary Vee, who was like completely, he was like orange. It just like, it wasn't (laughs) like the others at all. Um, And that was at least very interesting. And I also got to know Jeff Nicholson, who at the time was our chief media officer. And he started hitting me up and, you know, we started becoming friendly. And he was telling me about their building and I thought, okay, great, I'm going to jump on board. I started on the Vayner media side. Um, I uh, worked on the media side for about a year and a half before going to launch our offices in Asia Pacific, which started with Singapore and expanded into Bangkok and Sydney and Tokyo and Hong Kong and others. Um, and then uh, we, you know, that had gone really well. And I think because of how quickly I was able to stand up Vayner in APAC in a market where Gary's awareness is not as high as mm-hmm. in the United States. Gary thought I was like ready for this next challenge. And he wanted to really put our best foot forward with this NFT work and the company that we're going to build. Um, you know, Gary tweeted something like right before we launched it, that said "Vayner NFT, it's going to be the biggest Vayner of them all. And I do believe that web three is the future of our company. Absolutely. Um, we see a huge, you know, Adam, you've been part of the Vayner family. Um, we've had a huge halo that has benefited the core business of VaynerMedia because of what we've been able to do in the NFT side of things. And I think it's uh, really created some differentiation for our core business. With that said, we have been fully remote um, or not fully remote. We've been at least partially remote since March of 2020. 2020. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Since March of 2020.
0: It's been it's Um, been so long. We actually have to, we have to fact check the year. I mean, it's been ages.
1: It's been ages and that was really challenging at first, but I think we have developed a rhythm. Um, Vayner is definitely an in-person kind of, we were definitely yeah. an in-person kind of a company where, you know, whether it's like playing beer pong in the office or like evening hangs or, you know, working on a deck at, at the social like element late to night, it. the social element that really, you know, is the reason we have so many Vayner couples, um, people who met in the office. Uh, so that I think is, is the biggest detriment to like sort of what we've lost. But with that, I think our people have gained a lot of flexibility, which gives them more time for work-life balance. And we've tried to be very intentional around curating some great stuff in person when we can. So we actually That's just right had enough. a team offsite where we flew in everybody for Vayner3, you know, hung out in person, uh, took over an area of Hudson Yards, got to know each other on a personal level. And I think those things really matter and are, are really valuable. They do
0: matter. And so, I mean, so if you go back, let's let's just say you're, you, you're a brand new employee. You just got graduated San Diego and now you're a Target. Can you even imagine starting a job at a college fully remote?
1: Um, I guess I can because I've seen a lot of people do it. But for me, uh, well, Target's an interesting place. I bet Target's one of those places where they're back in the office because they 100%. get back to their manual and And because of even, uh, so yes, of course, there's the sort of central business and marketing functions, but the vast majority of target employees actually work in a store. So I would assume they probably have, the execs probably are in in office. Um, I think it'd be a totally different experience. I think that you lose that social element and you lose that, I mentioned people from my start class, you lose that connection to some of those people who are going through it with you.
0: I mean, I was just about to say, but what about, what about also like all those things you learn as a young employee by observing senior folks like yourself, how you conduct yourself in meetings, body language, cadence, how you interact as a leader, how, you know, I can't even imagine being in a place where I am now if I didn't have those early experiences, like grinding my way through an office and being in those meetings and taking the notes and just being a fly on the wall that now I think a lot of these younger employees are missing out on.
1: I think you're right. Um, but with that, to an, said, extent. They're also, to, an extent. to an extent, I think they're also um, just, it's a different work environment now. And, you know, it means you can be more casual, but it also means that you have way more Zoom fatigue. Like people sit on their oh, computers yeah. on, you know, calls like this, like 10 hours a day. And that really wears on people as well. Um, we do have people who uh, like to manifest as their avatars at Vayner3. And that's cool too. So it's a whole new working environment. And I think it's not for you know, me to judge what's right or wrong. But um, I think if I joined Target in, uh, what was it, 2011 um, and started fully remote, I would have had a very different working experience there.
0: So you as the, the, the leader of Vayner3, what has been your biggest challenge in building, growing and maintaining culture on this team over the last couple of years?
1: The biggest challenge is... Ensuring that we're able to balance the quality of work with the speed at which Web3 is moving. We might have an amazing idea two months ago, but by the time it launches, oh, the market's totally shifted. That's like that idea is dead. There's the speed that matters so much in Web3, and you want to balance that with the culture and not burning people out. So I think that's our biggest challenge is Web3 moves really quickly. And you want to have the right work-life balance for your team while being super innovative, which requires that always-on type of monitoring and and having a pulse on the market.
0: So I heard in a previous interview that your first six months, and correct me if I'm wrong here, if I misheard this, but your first six months at, at, at Vayner were, were a little bit difficult, not necessarily in a bad way, but just adjusting to that entrepreneurial nature of the company and the speed. And, and I know when I was at Vayner, it's been like eight years, but it was, it was very similar is the fact that, like, hey, this is different. This is not what I'm used to. I'm used to coming from a much more structured. I'm sure you heard stories back in the day where we would come in and there'd be no seats left and we have to sit on the floor. That's mm-hmm. how quickly it was growing. But how did you handle, adjust and react to that inside to make sure it didn't manifest in a negative energy outside?
1: I had a huge learning curve when I first joined Media, no doubt about it. Going platform side and brand side to agency side oh, yeah. is not oh, yeah. a typical direction. Usually you see people go agency side, the company side, and then we've had so many people do that and they're like, wow, I'm chilling. Like, this is great. Like I've got <laughs> like five hours per day, uh, extra. Um, so it's not a common direction, but I wanted to do that because I wanted to challenge myself and, uh, you know, Gary told me, if you work for me for two years, you're going to learn more than you will 10 years at Google. And who knows if that's exactly true, but it was very thought provoking. And I learned touch. so much in the first two years at, at Vayner that have really unlocked um, opportunities for me that would have never been possible working in a huge company like that. Even doing interviews like this, you know, requires like seven levels of clearance, um, which is is not the fun thing to do. So
0: now nah, we get through them.
1: Exactly. It's it's Um, worth
0: it. It's worth it. Yeah,
1: you get through them. But it's, it's like you've got have a a bunch of these types of things, which of course, they need to do as a big company. So my first six months were a big learning curve. I had a lot of late nights, a lot of just figuring out how to do things that, you know, at Vayner, um, were very self sufficient. And that means whether it's building a website or making a sizzle reel, or you know, doing a recruitment fair or doing a Web3 demo day, we just do it ourselves um, a lot of the time. And, you know, that's a kind of a contrast to Google where there's specialists within the company who do every little part of um, what needs to happen. And it's one of the things that I love a, a, about working at Vayner is that we're so self-reliant.
0: And I was literally about to say that. And um, I was I was going through the editing. I was telling you before we, we just completed the coverage for for VCon. And one of the pieces of I have Jen Stiles, who, who you know well, over. Adore over Jen. At- uh, Jen is amazing just texting with her before and we I recorded a segment at a dinner that we were having and she talked about everyone at the table that we're all self-starters we're all creators and then builders and I think that's really the common trait in the web3 world and I think that's one of the common traits of vayner too is really that entrepreneurial spirit it's like hey let's figure it out and let's get it done and not always have to outsource let's look inside first and I think that's a huge component of web three. So let's talk about web three for a moment here, not just specifically NFTs, but we talk about, which is all inclusive in web three, whether it be, you know, uh, crypto blockchain and all the other pieces. What's, what's like really exciting you about this space so much that you have really dedicated your professional career to it.
1: A couple of things that have really inspired me to dedicate like my entire professional focus to it. One is, um, One is the creator opportunities. I think for the first time ever as a creator, you are really incentivized to build in this new ecosystem. You can, one, have aligned incentives with your community. Two, you get the vast majority of the sort of like proceeds from both an initial mint and secondary. The secondary element is just so huge for even emerging creators who they are small now, but who knows, in 10 years, they might be huge and and having this ability to actually continuously develop um, a revenue stream from their early work is incredible. So one is the creator opportunities. Two is the fact that I believe that this is the next generation of communication um, between brands and their consumers or their communities. I think in web two, I saw this at Google where like, you're basically just paying a toll, even like searching your brand terms, brands Mm. have to pay for that. They have to do it because if they don't, it's like, somebody else is going to bid it and buy it. Um, so you're basically literally paying whenever Mm -hmm. someone searches your own brand to have them directed to your page. We see the same thing from Instagram and Facebook where, you know, if you want to reach your own fans and followers, you have to pay because everything's a pay to play model now that those days of organic are kind of gone. Um, and Mm -hmm. I think that basically means brands are renting their own audiences from these platforms. And I believe that, um, this new paradigm that's, unlocked by web three is going to enable a far more transparent and mutually beneficial relationship between brands and fans who actually want to follow them and engage with what they're building.
0: I love and that. Then, take. So let, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I go for it.
1: Yeah. And I think that the third reason I'm really interested in, in web three is that I think that it's just so clear that consumers are spending so much of their time online. It makes complete sense that they will start to own items digitally and express themselves digitally in an interoperable fashion. Like I know I can talk about myself and I know I'm on my computer 12 hours a day. And the fact that I don't have a digital identity that I can bring with me across different ecosystems is such a gap that I think, um, you know, will become clear to others in the coming years. It's just, I see it very clearly that this is the next iteration of how consumers are going to express themselves digitally.
0: That's a fantastic take on that. And I certainly appreciate it. And, and I didn't mean to interrupt you before because my brain immediately went to this thought of playing nice in the sandbox. I mean, pun intended here, where you have brands. And, 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 I, and I think I'm going to go in my soapbox for a minute here. I don't think we talk enough about Web 2.5, that it doesn't always have to go full Web 3. And I think a lot of the brands right now are transitioning from figuring out the Web 2 to the Web 3. And I think there's a place for Web 2.5 for us to pause and say, what's this middle ground? How are we ensuring that we're transitioning not only the customer experience, but also internally and making sure that we're not jumping ahead too quickly? How how do you, because there's a huge consultancy component to Vayner3, how do you work with with, with these Web2 companies, these, these you know, historically you know, tenured organizations to play nice in the sandbox with these new wave of creators? Some of them might even be docs. It may be one name folks that you don't even know who the heck they are and all you're looking at is a profile picture. How do you kind of work with your clients, especially ones that are seasoned corporate executives, to dip their toes in the water and play nice in the sandbox?
1: I think by creating programs that are mutually beneficial between the creator and the brands. The creators want to gain more mainstream notoriety, more mainstream um, awareness, and the brands want web-through relevance. So if we can build those partnerships that are a win-win for both parties – then everybody wins. And mm-hmm. we're still at these very early days where like one plus one can equal 11 if it's the right partnership, if it's <laughs> doodles and bear Paint, if it's Johnny mm-hmm. Walker and gift goat, if it's, you know, nouns Vulcan. and Bud Light, like there are just so many of these that I think have really landed and really resonated in a way that's mutually beneficial for both parties. And by the way, it doesn't need to be a purely like commercial transaction. I think that we've done some that are very like paid sponsorship and some that it's an in-kind type of situation um, that, can really add value to both sides of the organization. And at Vayner3, oftentimes we're more behind the curtain, right? It's not like we're, not, it's not coming from us, right? It's coming from either a brand or an NFT program and and we're the matchmakers. And that's a the really girlfriend. fun place for us to be.
0: And that's a beauty of Web3. It's just been so open and connecting. I think we saw that at, um, if we go back to VCon and I think about my experience and, and I was very privileged and lucky to have media credentials and be behind the scenes and see all of these brands Interacting, and when I say brands, these are people. These are right. people that you and I know very well. People that I've just met for the first time, and everybody was so open and connecting, and and this mindfulness of of, of abundance. I mean, what excites you the most about this community of people?
1: I love that. Yeah, I love the abundant mindset. I love that everybody's here to build, and that people are. It's really like all tides are the boat is the tide is lifting all of the boats right Collaborate now. Collaborative or competing? Exactly. So it's very collaborative over compete, even with other agencies and consultancies. Like I send them leads. Like I want everybody to get into the space of web three because that makes my job easier versus harder. So it's not, it's not a competitive place. I don't think this like golden era of like collaboration will last forever. Inherently like space is mature. People get into pricing wars and all that, but we're still like years away from that happening. Hopefully. And it's so nice to like, you know, really build with people who everyone wants to win and, um, The Web3 community, I think, is something really special. I've made, like, genuinely great friends. Last night, I had dinner with uh, with Keith Grossman, who I literally just met through FT's. And, yeah, he's an amazing, like leader and, and figure in the space and we're talking about NFTs and he said I, he was in Miami and I was like let's get together and we got together for dinner and you know I've made some like genuine real friendships through um through the NFT ecosystem and I think that's um Amen. just unusual for a hobby <clears throat> and, and profession to to take on such a big percentage of um of your time and energy but as as you know Adam like NFTs really suck you in and like you're so many of us are so passionate about this where we really want to dedicate our time in and outside of work to advancing space
0: I mean, amen to that. I mean, it's so funny, too. Uh, our other mutual friend, my good friend Chris Adamo, um, at the end of VCon, we were sitting late Saturday night. We were sitting up in one of the end zones. And he says to me, "Because it feels like summer camp. It feels like VFriend summer camp. Everyone is you know, happy to see each other. We're all playing and having a good time. And it's like, see you next summer. You know, it's like, it's a real community there. Um, so I want to close out the conversation on NFTs before I bring it home here and wrap up the show. What do you think, Avery, is the number one threat against growing and preserving a healthy, you know, NFT ecosystem?
1: Over-commercialization and over-focus on, um, on the financial aspects of NFTs. I think what has happened over the last 18 months is there's been a tremendous rise in both ETH price, and, um, NFT prices. Um, and a lot of people are new to crypto, so they haven't been through one of these cycles before. So, uh, it creates a lot of like anxiety and fear and FUD, um, the people who've been through a couple of these are just like, okay, well, let's build because, you know, the next cycle will be coming. Um, it's hard to predict. Nobody has a crystal ball, so we can't tell you when, but this will be back. It will be better. It will be bigger. Um, and I think if an overfocus on commercialization is very detrimental to both NFT brands and projects um, and to bring in more mainstream folks. Because that's the reason we see so many headlines being super negative because the positive headlines were all about X is selling for millions of dollars, and X is worth a billion dollars. So, with that over focus on financialization, you get the positive headlines, but then you get the negative headlines as well. And I Very hope true. in the next season of crypto and Web three, um, we're able to uh, we're able to think about Web three beyond just the immediate financial gains.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic take. So, leave it. Leave us with uh, one top secret piece of alpha. What, what 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 projects? What what NFT projects are kind of exciting you right now? That Maybe, you know, if you're a casual collector, maybe you should look into and check out.
1: Great question. Put you on the spot Um, there. I think we're going to continue to see open editions and um, free mints be the projects of people who are building right now. I think those who are smart and strategic are understanding the current market conditions, make it very hard to sell out a fixed number Mm -hmm. and very hard to sell out um, at a high price point. But actually, it's not even altruistic. If you design a cool program and you sell it for free, you'll make more money on the secondary. So I think that there's an opportunity in both free, like free mints with a real like art, a real with a real team real value. and um, open editions. I think the women in weapons team just did an open edition mint. And I thought it was so smart as a way to not create FUD and um, also let the market decide the quantity. Um, it's something that let we've seen uh, with um, with some top artists with very small periods of time, like 10 minutes, whatever. But I think we'll start to see open editions do really well.
0: That's some really good ones. So let's bring it home here, Avery. What is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every day?
1: One thing that I just was reading about um, was Danny Meyer's Excellence Reflex. Uh, Someone on my team told me about this and I spent the weekend reading up on it. The Excellence Reflex is something that you can't even necessarily train, but when you see a piece of trash in the ground, you pick it up. You see, you know, somebody who has finished in their teeth, you tell them something to the side, you see something, a typo in a deck, you fix it. Um, I think that the excellence reflex is something that I try to bring to every part of my life. Um, just that, that excellence reflex. And it's something that I try I to inspire in my team and, and friends as well, is just always being the bigger person, always um, just trying to trying to keep it excellent.
0: I love it. And that's such an important take. Just as Gary says it all the time, doing the right thing every time is the right thing. And last but not least, Avery, you look back on your, on your life and your career and there's been challenges. There's been peaks and valleys. And when you think about those valleys and challenging times, you've had to look deep down inside and you've had to harness your own inner tenacity to pull you up and pull you forward through those tough times. And on the opposite side of that, where you sit now, you are leading an incredibly innovative organization at the forefront of everything awesome, technologically sound, everything going in the right direction, and you want to show gratitude. Avery, what is your compass in life? What is your North Star?
1: I try to leave every day a little bit better than how I started it. Always try to give more than I take. Um, I think uh, over the past, you know, in my career, I've had the opportunity to do things that were incredible. Um very special opportunities, but we're also really challenging and really challenged me and, and pushed me into places I didn't think were possible. Um, but always just trying to leave things a little bit better than I found them. Um, try to help somebody out. Um, it's been amazing to see how, you know, my role at Viener has allowed me to change so many lives of people who joined us and have gone on to do amazing things, gone on to help us, um, in big ways and, and really change their lives. So that's something that I take, uh, I take a lot of pride in, and also I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that.
0: Awesome. Avery, I want to thank you so much for not just your time today, and I said it earlier, but just your generosity as far as knowledge and always giving and always connecting and always doing the right thing. I want to thank you so much. Where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more?
1: For sure. internet. Vayner3.com. Excuse me. Let's do this again. Vayner3.com is our website. You can also find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, all Instagram, all the places. And for me personally, I am Avery underscore Akinini on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever you need to find me. And thank awesome. you so much for having me, Adam. It's been really fun to hang out with you
0: absolutely likewise and i will catch you at the next event soon either in miami or minneapolis or wherever the world takes us hang with us for one moment here as we sign off. i want to thank everyone for joining us today please follow avery she is incredible get the real alpha check out vayner 3 you know where to find out more at the podcast.com follow us on all the socials remember look out for one another take care of each other and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast take care everybody wisdom is forever but for us